Looking forward to getting back in this passage and uh, start chapter 3 together and back in the book. And so I hope you can join us. If you need an outline, I believe Brother John's back there. He'll be making his way down the middle aisle. And uh, if you need one, uh, if you don't have a prayer bulletin, you need an outline, get his attention. And we'll be glad to get that to you. And so you can follow along. Delve into chapter 3. Hard to believe we're already in chapter 3. You may not think that, but I think that. And, uh, and uh, it's a great passage. I'm excited about it. Okay, Hebrews chapter number 3. We'll delve into the passage in just a moment. If you need an outline, get Brother John's um, attention, if you will. Let me ask you a question, not necessarily to be answered out loud. So kind of just answer it in your mind or your head here. Um, who is your favorite American hero of the past? Uh, your favorite American hero of the past. Okay. Maybe you have a bunch. Maybe you have several. I, I, I certainly do. And uh, having taught history, studied it uh, many years, it's uh, several that I enjoy. Obviously, George Washington is my favorite. He's a great, humble leader, uh, seemingly new to the Lord, and uh, understood that this nation needed to be founded on godly biblical principles. I, uh, I'm also partial to Stonewall Jackson, and uh, sorry to the North, and uh, uh, mainly because I had a good, solid Christian testimony. I used to teach Sunday school. And, uh, but was also a fantastic soldier for America, even before he fought for the South. And uh, just a, a stirring testimony of his faith in the Lord and always an encouragement. I can thank my dad for this next American hero. I, I'm a fan of Sergeant Alvin York from Tennessee. And, uh, and a great story there and a neat little thing. And it helped that he was a back, backwoods boy from Tennessee and uh, fought for our nation. And uh, amazing feat in World War I, just amazing in what he did and uh, killing about 20 to 35 of the enemy and capturing about 25 gun, machine guns, uh, capturing 132 single-handedly. Amazing story and just unbelievable. But also his attempt to follow the Lord through all that. These, uh, you could name any more. I could go through down a long list and, uh, of folks that we look at and we hold in great esteem as Americans. And American heroes, we would call them. And uh, I'll just insert a little total personal opinion, not biblical opinion. It grieves my heart on a personal level to see us tearing down monuments and statues for men of the past and ladies of the past. Okay, I, I, If we were going to tear them down, if everybody, for everybody that has something wrong with them, we would have no statues, no memorials, and everything else. All right, And so just because we appreciate and esteem somebody doesn't necessarily agree, mean that we agree with everything they did in their life, but we ought to be thankful for what they did do. And uh, anyway, that's just a personal opinion. If you want to debate me about that later, you certainly may. Uh, anyway, but I'm thankful for American heroes, and we highly esteem them. We, we hold them in great regard. But you know what? If we were to hold our regard, our esteem for some of the American heroes that we appreciate next to the Jewish uh, estimation or regards for some of their forefathers of the past, it would pale in comparison. I don't think you and I would come anywhere close to the, the passion that they have behind their regard for some in their history, and especially among the Jews in Paul's day. In, in the time that this letter was written, they, they were huge about their forefathers, holding them in great esteem, high regards, and uh, revering them, really. And I, I think among that group, there was probably uh, nobody more revered than Moses. To bring out to a Jew, Moses, that, that brought all kinds of things to his mind and so forth. And really, the majority of the exciting stories about Israel past, you, you got to think, that they kinda, Moses is right there. I mean, ponder this for a moment. Here was a man that had a miraculous birth in the sense all the other babies were being killed. God miraculously watches over him, protects him. And then on the other end of his life, 
he is amazingly, uh, God himself takes care of the burial of this man. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. And if you study the life of Moses, it seems that it just goes from one miracle to another miracle to another miracle to another miracle to another miracle. His life was was quite amazing. And uh, God spoke to him personally as the representative of the nation, the whole nation, many times. And they're traveling and so forth. It started, obviously, at the burning bush, or at least that's one of the highlights, we should say. And, I mean, who else did God speak to out of a burning bush? Moses and uh, the stories and how he used them. And he was privileged himself to see the very glory of God. So much so that it reflected on his own face. Deuteronomy 34, 29 tells us that when he came down from Mount Sinai, what happened? His face was shining, right? And um, uh, just glowing in that sense and so forth. If that happened today, we think somebody was radioactive, amen? And uh, that was not the case, right? He was reflecting the very glory of God and just amazing. Who else was that set about per se? And uh, furthermore, he was the one used by God. He was the tool of God to lead the entire nation out of Egypt. On that journey in the wilderness, we, we know well he was the one that the law that was given became synonymous with his name. It is often called Moses' law, or as we often see even in Scripture, the law of Moses, right? They became synonymous. Literally, the very law of God that was given was uh, is mentioned with his name, assumed in that connection. And he, he was the one that wrote the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He also wrote all the Levitical instructions for the priest and everything else. He was also the man who gave the blueprint for the, the tabernacle and all the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and everything that went inside that. And, and this is pretty amazing. This, you can imagine and understand why they revered Moses, why he was held in such a high esteem. And so they would have viewed him greater than the angels, greater than the prophets like we've already talked about. And in fact, we would put it this way, and you can see it on your outline there if our clicker works here. Many Jews thought Moses was the greatest Jew that ever graced the soil of this earth. And so even them, and understand context, what are they waiting for? They're still waiting for the Messiah, even today in their own minds. The, the Jews are those who hold to Judaism. And so in their minds, Moses, and I would say many Jews today would even hold to this thought, that, that Moses was the greatest. Now, Abraham certainly important. Jacob and Isaac, yes, they would hold them in high esteem. But I, I think you would find that Moses uh, holds the highest place. It's ingrained in their heads and in their hearts It's an understood part of their heritage, their lineage that they cling to. So now as we come to chapter 3 of Hebrews, guess what block is coming down now? What is he going to dismantle in the uh, obstruction in the mind of the Jews uh, here? Well, he tackles the task of showing Christ's superiority to this man named Moses. Now let's, again, put it in context. For most Jews to say that someone was greater than Moses, they would probably respond with something to the effect of them there as fighting words. You don't do that. How how, how could you say somebody was greater than Moses? How in the world would you put this person above him? And yet, we will see, as the author of Hebrews shows us, there's simply no comparison between Moses and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he's trying to explain and uh, to really appeal in that way. Okay, so this brings us to the point of, all right, in chapter 3, who in the world is he addressing? Who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to believing Jews who are at the same time trusting Christ, but they're looking back at Judaism and uh, trying to hang on to some of their, uh, their uh, religious practices and things. They want to cling to both their faith in Christ and their family practice of the Jewish religion. 
If you look in verse 1, we'll read it in its entirety in a moment, but look at verse 1. Notice how he addresses the, the, uh, the reader at this point. And so in a sense, you can see him kind of addressing different audiences as we've talked about here in Hebrews. He says, holy brethren. And then he makes a statement that I really like. He, he says, partakers of the heavenly calling. It shows us, number one, first of all, on the outline here, it shows us that it's addressed or directed to believers. Okay? So he's speaking to believers, those, as he calls, holy brethren, that set-aside mentality. Believers or uh, holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. That partakers of the heavenly calling, let's dwell on that for a moment. It's a great statement, right? It's really interesting. I like it because it speaks to the diversity, the diversity of the local church. Something that was happening. So now understand it. In this sense, the Jews were not used to diversity in the, in the church. They, they were used, okay, everybody here is a Jew, right? I mean, that's, you know, you, we can all trace our lineage and our heritage. We're all part of the Jewish family, the nation of Israel. Very seldom did they let somebody come in and be a part of that and, and so forth. Even today, it's very guarded in a sense. And so in that context, these Jews didn't understand that there's diversity uh, in God's church, in Christ's church. And said, yet, as he uses this statement, don't miss it, partakers of the heavenly calling. Okay? The term there for partakers is a term also meaning companions. We're together in this. It's like we're team in this. It's kind of the mentality of the, ver- the word there. And uh, it's why in the church we can have employers <laughs> uh, gathering to worship with employees. It's why we can have workers from all kinds of different fields here. It's why we can have rich and poor meet together and worship together. It's why we can have all levels of educational achievements all in the same place meeting and worshiping together. Why? Because we have something in common that supersedes all of that. What is that? Our heavenly calling. We're Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ. And that is who and what we have in common. You see the statement here. We are, in definition of the phrase, we are companions sharing a unique fellowship because we share a common allegiance to Jesus Christ. We have this in common. So-called church growth experts of years, past few years, they've recommended in their writings and they base them upon their surveys and their studies. They, they say that churches will only grow if they are made up of the same kind of folks. And so they've put out this and they, they've written it. And so to further explain it, that is, if you are rich or, excuse me, you have a church in a rich area, you need to minister only to the rich. If you have a church in a poor area, you should minister only to the poor. In other words, they're saying diversity in the church doesn't really work. And I would say, based upon God's word, they're wrong. Throughout the scriptures, you see diversity. And as the gospel spread and there were churches popping up everywhere, you would have Gentile and Jews and Romans and everybody, Greeks, come together, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're like, wow, this is a motley crew. This is an unusual, diverse crew. Nothing in the world can unify like the commonality of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the great joys of going on a mission trip, as Pastor Tony and Diane are, is to be able to travel around the world in different places and see folks uh, that you wouldn't normally have anything in common with, but because you share in Jesus Christ, you can have a fellowship that is beyond anything earthly can provide. And my friends, that, that is a great delight. I, when we were in Virginia, it's interesting, uh, Reagan just got a graduation card from a, a dear family out in Virginia. I was thinking about it. I uh, they, were only, they, they were one generation, I believe, removed 
from living in Iraq. And just Iraqis, and there's another family that led me to that, another Iraqi family here in the Middle East. And I'm telling you, I would have never thought growing up in the, the, uh, the cornfields of Indiana that I'd rub shoulders with people all over the world. Even in our own church here, we have a diversity of backgrounds, diversity of, of jobs and things we do, a diversity of upbringings and so forth. How in the world is unity and do we have something? How in the world do we gather together? We do it with the commonality of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is a heavenly calling, as he puts here. And I love this simple truth. We don't fellowship based upon material things. In other words, we don't only let in those who drive a Ford. Right? Okay, we can go round and round about if you like uh, green tractors or red and white tractors. Whether you like a Spartan or you like a Wolverine. We can have that debate, but it doesn't really matter because that's not what our fellowship is based upon. Our fellowship is based on Paul, and we are partakers, companions in what? A heavenly calling. That is the basis. We don't, we don't fellowship based on social standing, even intellectual endowments, you name it. We, none of those forms the basis. We gather together because we are companions through that, as we call it, a heavenly calling. Now, why is that so important? Because he's making a great point to the Jews who are reading this letter and saying, wait a second, you have a heavenly calling. Now, what is it that the Jews had? Well, in all honesty, if you think about it, what they had was an earthly calling. Their fellowship came like, oh, you're a Jew, and, and uh, yes, I'm of this lineage, I'm of this tribe, and so forth. And that is their uh, uh, coming together. I, it's interesting, and, and I think I've mentioned it before, we have a, a Jewish doctor that we know down in the city, and uh, he does the circumcision for our, our boys that are born, um, uh, the last couple at least. And after Ryan was born, in fact, he said, uh, as he was leaving the house, he goes, I'll see you later. <laughs> we said, no, you won't. We were wrong. He was right. Uh, and so we hear her again, and that joker said the same thing. <laughs> I didn't say a word. I just walked away. I'm not going to respond to that. <laughs> anyway, nonetheless, I was talking. I love picking his brain because he is uh, he, he's a full-fledged Orthodox Jew, and uh, it's quite interesting to converse with him. I've tried to get in the context and topic of Jesus Christ and things, but one of the conversations we had this last time was about going back to Israel, and his son actually went back, grew up, his son is... Uh, full-blooded American, obviously, in that sense, uh, growing up here, a citizen here, but he went back and served in the Israeli army. And because all Jews, wherever they are, are still part of the nation of Israel, and I said, well, how do you prove that? He goes, it's not hard, and, and sometimes they've got to take your word for it, but they do want you to somehow prove lineage to some degree of that. Now, again, it's kind of lax anymore, but in order to gain that, you have to prove your lineage. Now, that's interesting because all through the Scriptures, you know what the Jews always claim? Our lineage, our father Abraham, our this, and I'm connected this way, I'm of this tribe, and so forth. Theirs is an earthly calling, as we would describe it here. Their blessings and experience are tied to a country, a nation, really, look in the Old Testament, a specific land. Uh, you look in the blessings of God, and they're really tied to the promised land. Aren't you thankful tonight? You and I don't have blessings tied to a place. Our blessings are tied to a person. See, Jesus Christ. And I love the point of the author here. He says, listen, we have a heavenly calling. It's not earthly. We're not going about claiming Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this. Those are good guys. They're heroes of the faith. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for the testimony. But my blessing does not depend on my connection to them. My blessing depends on my connection to Jesus Christ. And that's through faith and trust in him. And I love the truth that we see coming to the top here. The, uh, the Jews 
they would experience blessings as long as they stayed in the promised land and they acted righteously. We see that throughout the whole Old Testament. They had to conquer the land. They had to inhabit the land, kick out the nations. And then once they inhabited, they need to live righteously, not have any other gods before them. And they failed at that, so they lost their blessings. Can I tell you right now, I'm thankful that you and I, our blessings aren't dependent about being in a land. We're in Jesus Christ already. And furthermore, I don't have to claim my righteousness to gain blessings. I claim Jesus Christ's righteousness. And and Hebrews is all about this truth, trying to, listen, Jews, why are you looking back? Why are you longing for something that isn't nearly as good as what's right in front of your face? And so the encouragement here at the beginning is this. You are citizens of the heavenlies. So let go of the things here on earth. Let go of them. Obviously, this is directed first and foremost to Jews. Let go of that heritage and your religious practices of Judaism. Let go of that and claim your spiritual lineage found in Jesus Christ alone. Here they were trying to kind of hang on to both. And the author, Paul, here is trying to challenge them that in this little statement, just at the beginning of verse 1, we've hardly read it, and yet he's trying to encourage them. And in the person of Jesus Christ, they have so much more. Literally, that's what the passage does. So we, we read this appeal now that flows, okay? Number one is quickly this, and it's a supplication. And in this verse, we'll read it here in just a moment. It, it, he's, his supplication to them, his, his prayer to them, his plea, his appeal to them is this, consider Christ, consider Christ. Okay? You're so caught up in your heritage, you're so caught up in all of this, let's consider what you have in Christ, who he is and what he is. Look at verse number one, let's read it now. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, that's capital A, obviously, and referring to Christ, and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Okay? I love this statement here. We'll get into it quite a bit. A lot to unpack. First of all, the very first word is wherefore. So we know he's basing this upon what he's already written, what he's already uh, shared. We, we studied it already. And so he says then, in context of that, wherefore, we've established these things, you ought to consider, we jump to the end of the verse, Jesus Christ. The word consider in its full definition or meaning, it means a focused attention and I like this aspect of it, a continuous observation. A continuous observation. In other words, it is the idea of giving your diligent attention to the one that is the supreme apostle, and he is the perfect high priest of our faith. Literally put your mind on that, okay? And focus on that. Understand who he is and all that he has done. And, and really, it is a call to kind of this idea of focusing now on the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Everything you would want, everything that you could ever need is found in Jesus Christ. So relinquish everything else that you're holding on to. I need to do these religious things. I I need to do this. And No, relinquish that. Let go of that and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's really the plea here. Consider Christ. Turn your eyes on him. Make sure that you're gazing upon him. It's interesting as the statement here, he alone is all that anyone needs. And that's really, stop hanging on to your past in Judaism and trying to hang on to belief in Christ. Don't do that. Let go of that. Trust in Christ alone. In Christ alone. And uh, uh, solo Christos, the idea of Christ alone, nothing else are we claiming. Interestingly, this is one of the only times that scriptures 
refer to Jesus Christ as the apostle. And I think that's interesting. The terminology of, the, uh, of apostle, it means a sent one, right? A specifically sent messenger. I don't know about you, but as soon as I read that, when he calls Jesus Christ apostle, what does it draw our minds to? For me, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent him. Christ came. He, he was that apostle. He was sent. And uh, in that sense of an apostle, what does the apostle do? Well, represents God the Father to the people. Uh, and the high priest represents the people to the Father. Okay? So the apostle is sent from the Father, and he's here to proclaim a message. And yet the high priest now goes on our behalf to the Father uh, in, in different ways. And what's the point here? Christ fulfills these two roles better than anyone. Okay, why is that important? Let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, what did Moses do? Well, a lot of time he was telling the people what? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith Jehovah. He he was in that sense an apostle. He was sent, and and certainly he was, because he walks into Egypt, and they're like, who are you? He's like, I was sent by Jehovah to to, to, to lead you out of Egypt. They're like, what? You remember what God said? Tell them the great I am sent you. Okay. You're a sent one, and you're not just sent by anyone. You're sent by the great I am, God Jehovah. And so he, he was certainly an apostle. Now, let me ask you this. What happened in the wilderness and many times over uh, did Moses have to fulfill? It was kind of like a priestly role, wasn't it? Jews would sin. God was going to uh, dispense judgment uh, in his righteous jealousy. He was going to let it fly. And what did Moses have to go do? Kind of plead for the people, didn't he? He, he had to go before God saying, oh, if you destroy them, there won't be anybody left. He says that one time. You remember that? <laughs> and God says, I can raise a whole nation. from." And I'm like, good point, God. But let's not do that, right? It's kind of like what Moses said, right? Don't do that. And so he was a high priest going before on their behalf to God. So when here it mentions it, Jesus Christ is the apostle, Jesus Christ is the high priest, he's putting it in context with something very familiar to them, and that was the role of Moses before there was such a thing as the priest in the Judaism uh, religious idea, even before in that sense they, the idea of a messenger or a prophet to some degree in their mind. That's what Moses was. And so he says, listen, Jesus Christ is the ultimate apostle, messenger for me. Greater than any prophet, greater than Moses. He he was the ultimate high priest. He could do what no other high priest could do. And he did it. The rest of Hebrews kind of details that. And so as that apostle, uh, Christ comes and what does he tell us? Well, God, Christ in heaven tells us what? There's a God in heaven that loves you. There's a God in heaven that wants to forgive your sins, and there's a God in heaven that wants you to spend eternity with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good message. Better message than any of us have heard in a long time, amen? God in heaven loves you. God in heaven wants to forgive your sins, and God in heaven wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. And so Jesus Christ brought that message in all of his forms, and he, he is the one that told us that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He delivered the message. And now he is fulfilling that high priest role, as we said before. He's in heaven representing us to the Father, pleading our case and our cause even right now. I find that to be such a great thought that he is representing us before God. You know, each one of us here, and uh, as Michiganders, we have a representative in Congress supposedly representing us, amen? And uh, supposedly representing our interests, supposed to be representing our cares, our concerns, and everything else. I don't know how well that's going, 
But here's one thing I know. The representative in Washington, D.C. may not be doing as good of a job as I would want, but I know this, the representative in heaven on my behalf is doing a great job. He's representing us well. He's taking care of us on our behalf. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, how much we need. He knows it all, and he is our high priest. He is representing us well. I have faith in him. And so here's the point. Consider him. Well, how do you make that practical? What does that mean? Put our minds on. Give our attention to. And may I just say this tonight in its simplicity? That really is what the Christian life is about. See, Christ said it in Matthew chapter 11, I believe it was. He, he said what? Learn of me. Really, I mean, obviously, even in the Greek, the, uh, the articles there are somewhat interchangeable. It means what? Learn of me. Learn from me. In other words, pay attention, okay? You're not going to learn unless you pay attention, unless you look to me, learn of me, learn from me is what he said there. I, I like what Paul told uh, a struggling Timothy, a young pastor going through some difficult time in the ministry, even health-wise. He, he told Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he goes, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Christ. Get, get your eyes back on Christ. Peter experienced it on the water, right? And taking your eyes off Christ, we know that. Hebrews chapter 12, in verse number 2 of the same book, the author says what? Well, he calls on us to look upon Jesus, the author of the finisher of our faith. That term there means literally fixate your eyes upon him, to learn of him. That really is what the Christian life is about. Can I ask you today, did you live without Christ today? I'm not asking if, he, if he's in your heart, if you're saved. I, that's not the question. I trust we're past that in our Wednesday night group. My question is this. Did you live with Christ today? Do you talk in prayer to our Heavenly Father through Christ? Did you call on his name? Did you pray in Christ's name today for certain things and everything in life? Did you keep your eyes on Christ today? I really think the older I get and the, <laughs> the closer we get to heaven... I think the key to the Christian life is just keeping our eyes on Christ. Consider him. Consider Christ. Think on him often. I found myself today in light of this message just driving down the road. And you know what? It may be a simple trip from church to home, but I ought to pray and ask God to bless my trip. I ought to consider Christ. Everything we do and every little aspect of our life, we, we really ought to bring Christ into this and ma- make him the focus of our attention. And uh, wouldn't it be great if someone accused us of being, well, you're just all about Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Someone who's around us, I mean, oh, you, you just keep bringing up that guy named Jesus Christ. All you think about is what Jesus Christ would do. All you think, I, I mean, that would be, and I, that is literally what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Consider Christ. Make him the focal point of your life and all that you do. And it's quite the encouragement here to run the Christian life in the race successfully. We must consider Christ constantly looking at him. That's the supplication. Okay? Number two, we see a similarity, and I think this is something he bears out, and uh, both Jesus and Moses were faithful to the rules. Okay? So he's comparing them, but in this comparison, he brings up a similarity to kind of kick things off. Right? And uh, he compares in their faithfulness in their roles. Now there's a particular word that is repeated multiple times, several times in verses 2 through 6. Maybe you can guess what it is. I'll go ahead and tell you. Glance down. We'll read verse 2 here in a moment. But that word, now this is interesting, is the word house. House. 
Look at verse number two with me, if you will. Chapter three, verse two. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Okay, so he's talking about Jesus Christ. Okay, who was faithful? Jesus Christ, who was faithful? We can obviously, these verses run together. Who was faithful? So as an apostle and a high priest, Jesus Christ is completely faithful is what the author here is establishing. He's faithful to God the Father as an apostle, taking his message to mankind. Also, let's not forget, he was faithful in following the will of God the Father in bringing about the redemption of mankind. He's also faithful to you and I. We can count on him in this moment. He's interceding before God on our behalf. He's really bringing our case before God. Um, and that was even, I'd back up and say this. I don't want to quickly pass over. I'm trying to hurry. But um, even during his earthly ministry, Christ was faithful both as an apostle and a high priest. I find it often interesting to read Jesus Christ. Even while he was here on earth, he was sharing the message of Jesus Christ, of himself, of redemption of God in heaven, but he was also interceding on people's behalf, praying for them. Praying different things to God the Father and just interceding on their behalf. He was very faithful. Now, we think of Moses. He was also faithful but Moses wasn't perfect, right? There's situations that Moses failed at. He, he wasn't perfectly obedient. Certainly Jesus Christ was, and there's a comparison here, okay? His life, though, is marked by faithfulness to God in that he took care of, don't miss it, the house he was entrusted with. That's what we're getting the context here. Now, this association, this illustration, he took care of the house he was entrusted with. You say, where in the world do you get that? Here's the amazing thing. It actually comes, and you'll see in your outline there, from a verse in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, God said this, my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. So, man, this is one of these proofs that I think that Paul wrote this. You really had to know the Old Testament to bring that verse and that concept here to Hebrews chapter 3 and to present that to the Jew who would know that same passage and, and use it as a point of appeal. And he does that. He quotes this verse. You know, that's pretty amazing, okay? And I like what it establishes. Don't miss it. God built the house of Israel. It belonged to him. Uh, this household of Israel, as the term will also mean, uh, mean, it was his nation. He made it. Yet Moses was faithful in the responsibility that God gave him to oversee it, to lead it, to do what God asked of him, okay? Now, as we said a moment ago, and so that's the context, okay? And so that's the quote here. And I love the Schofield Bible. Many of you have the Schofield. It'll say that. It'll have these references in the middle. I love the, the contrast and comparison of scriptures tying it all together for us, right? So in that, Moses, he was faithful, God said, in taking care of the house that God had entrusted him to, okay? Um, you could call it he was the first house sitter, amen? And uh, something to that degree you could describe him as, okay? Now, we understand, though, he, he wasn't as faithful as Christ. What happened when uh, Moses was instructed a, 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 another time to, to speak to the rock? He, he does what? He hits it, right? We know that. He, he failed in that, and certainly he faced punishment because of that, okay? Um, and so there are times like that. We see that in his life. We understand that he was not like, um, obviously, Jesus Christ in a perfect that. He disobeyed. Um, but God does, does commend Moses for his faithfulness that he showed throughout his life. 
and he should be praised for that. In fact, this passage here literally uh, implies he should receive some glory for that. So he's not saying, hey, you should, uh, you know, don't hold him in high esteem. It's okay to hold Moses in high esteem, but there is one who has come that is much greater and should receive more glory than Moses. Look with me at verse number three. This is how the author puts it. For this man was counted worthy, notice it, what I just said, of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man. But he that built all things is God. Okay, so we, we had the supplication. Okay, we saw the similarity and that they're, they're both worthy to be praised. Number three, let's see this, the separation. Though Moses faithfully led the house, Jesus Christ faithfully made the house. See the passage and what it's saying? Yeah, Moses, he, he deserves some honor, some glory. He led Israel well. He was faithful in that. But it does not compare to the Son of God who was faithful in making the house. Jesus Christ who established it. This is such a great truth. So why is Christ worthy of more glory? Because though Moses faithfully led the house, Jesus Christ faithfully made the house. Well, let's say that you had an opportunity or the privilege to to walk inside a magnificent house huh? one that you couldn't even believe uh, existed maybe some of you have heard of the Biltmore estate and other places like that right okay and just just magnificent just uh, unbelievable as you walk into it and and uh, uh, you take in all the lavish furnishings all of the exquisite craftsmanship the the walls and the ceilings are just gorgeous and beautiful and uh, the whole house is gorgeously furnished and as you were to take in such a, a magnificent house, home, building, there's no doubt that if we were not familiar with the history, that at some point we'd probably ask this question, who built this house? Who did all this? I mean, who, who was it that built this house? This is amazing. Man, I'd like to see how they did it. I'd like to see what kind of tools they used. And we, we'd probably ask something along those lines. Well, it brings up this point, the simple reality that a magnificent building brings our attention to the builder. So we ask, who built this house? Who, who is the maker? Of that? I mean, who designed or who did the renovations? Whatever the question may be. And Moses should be praised for his faithfulness in leading Israel, but do not miss it. He did not make Israel a great nation. He did not give the law to the nation of Israel. He did not organize the nation. He did not establish their religion. He did not rescue them out of Egypt. God did that. He is the builder of the house. And I, I love this passage. Hey, Moses ought to be praised. He was a great tool in the hands. Okay? Have you ever heard somebody say, I love this hammer or I, I love this tool? Oh, it's my favorite tool. And, and Moses was kind of like that, for sure. But it was not the tool that did it. It was God in heaven that built it. He built the house. And here now where he's saying, Jesus Christ is that builder. He, he deserves more glory because that's who he is. Yes, Moses was simply the tool in the hand of a glorious God. And, and furthermore, Christ, not only is he faithfully guiding and directing you and I, helping us, giving us wisdom, protecting us, uh, he alone brought us into existence. He alone established what we are called the household of faith. God built this house. He did that. 
in this house is not talking about a building. It's talking about redemption, redeemed believers here. Not just Israel, but the church, the family of God, the called out assembly of believers. We are that house. Look, look down at verse number six. We're kind of jumping ahead, but notice what verse six says. But Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We're his house. He's built us. He's made it possible. I like what First uh, Peter 2, 5 says, just the first part. Now, therefore, um, ye also, excuse me, ye also, uh, as lively stones, are built a spiritual house. Peter wrote that. Secondly, and then here's the verse I started to quote. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Ephesians 2, 19, and of the household of God. You are the house that Christ has built, okay? There is a, a common statement, vernacular in, in our day. This is the house that so-and-so built. Can, can I tell you, as you and I walk around as children of God, part of the family of God, this is the house that Christ built. He made it. He made you. He created in us a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. We are new house, <laughs> in that sense, in the context that we find before us here. You see, Moses was only a member of the household that Christ built. Jesus is Christ. He created Israel, and he created the church. The builder is greater than any tools, and he deserves the greater glory. And this is the call of the author of Hebrews for the reader to come to know this God. Last but not least, and I'm glad we got through it and we've got two minutes left. The summit, okay? The summit. We've seen the supplication. We've seen, obviously, uh, the similarity. We've seen the separation. And now we see the summit. This is the climax. What is it? Well, Moses was a servant while Jesus Christ is the son. Look at verse 5. And we'll read verse 5 and 6 and we'll be done. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken of. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So here's that comparison, just the climax of it. Moses was great. He was a good servant. But Jesus Christ is the son. He is the one who established the house. Um, the servants come and go, but sons remain sons for life. Now listen to me. There's a great spiritual truth to be found here. Aren't you grateful that when you and I were saved, we were not just made the servants of God, we were made the sons and daughters of God? Why? Servants come and go. Sons are sons for life. And that is a great spiritual truth. The Greek term here too, in case you're wondering, that's not doulos. It's not the, the typical term for servant, which kind of means low-end, slave, uh, servant. That, that's not the term here. This is actually a, a higher ranking or uh, a one of dignity term for a servant. Okay? It's a higher rank. But even with that said, still a servant. Different than the son. Yes, Moses was faithful, obedient. He was a ministering servant, a steward of the things of God. He was faithful in that, but he was still a servant. What's amazing to me in Exodus 35 through chapter 40, no less than 22 times, Moses is praised for his faithfulness. And we are reminded in the New Testament, for you and I in our own lives, it is required of a steward to what? To be found faithful. Faithful. 
So Moses is a great one to look, an Old Testament hero, more so than the American heroes I mentioned before. We ought to emulate, we ought to be excited about Moses. But I'll tell you, friend, Moses, just like the prophets and just like the incomplete revelation of the Old Testament, just like the angels, he cannot hold a candle to Jesus Christ. He's not comparing in any way. And that is the thrust of the beginning of this chapter number three. There's a great implication, especially in, in, in verse five. You see that his testimony there. He was a faithful testimony of things that would come when? Later. It's going to come later. And he's making a subtle point here too. And we'll finish with this. Judaism without Christianity is incomplete. Judaism, in other words, Judaism without its Messiah, Jesus Christ, is incomplete. The Old Testament without the New Testament is incomplete. You just have the Old Testament that reveals us as sinners, that shows that we have fallen short of the glory of God. That, that is incomplete. I don't know about you, but I sure am thankful for the New Testament. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That was the good news. I'm grateful that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. And the law, the law without what? Without grace that Jesus Christ brought is incomplete. Paul is bringing these Jews to the realization, wait a second, this thing that I'm hanging on, it does me no good. There's nothing here to hang on to. It's not worth anything. It's not helping me. All that I need is Jesus Christ. The great apostle, the great high priest. You see, these things are a shadow of the substance. And you know what the author is pleading with? That last statement or outline. He's pleading with the reader of this. Don't settle for the shadow, but rather seek the substance. Don't settle for the shadow, but rather seek the substance. You see, Moses, he was a good shadow. He was a good one, a good testimony for what was to come, the substance, which is Jesus Christ. Can I just tell you this? We all know this. The shadow is never as good as the reality. Okay? I'll tell you, it would, it would look rather weird if I tried to kiss my wife's shadow. It's not nearly as good as kissing my wife. That's silly. I get it. But here's the truth. Listen to me. You know what grabbing onto the Old Testament and, and trying to follow the law and everything is? You know what you're doing? You're grasping at a shadow. You, will, you can exhaust yourself. You can wear yourself out trying to grab a shadow. You will never grab hold of substance. But I'll tell you, my friend, tonight, you and I can consider Jesus Christ, and there is substance to hang on to. As we head out into the day tomorrow, you and I can consider Christ, and you know what we can do? <laughs> hang on to him throughout tomorrow, and that's something worth hanging on to. That is the encouragement of the beginning of this passage. We'll delve into something else from these first few verses, and then we'll get into this, because that sets the table. It's a springboard. I wish we had time tonight, and if you wanted to stay for two more hours, we could get into it, but we won't, okay? But it's a great rest of the passage. Come back next week. We'll look forward to it, all right?